uh, what's it called? Uh, um, it's called um, uh, uh, yeah. Um, it's on the tip of my tongue. Does it begins with a P? First up, we've done our Kiwi neighbours a little bit of a disservice here, haven't we? Because uh, Sam Neill, the esteemed actor from somewhere down under, is actually not Australian. He's no, he's from New Zealand. And you know, I, when I was talking about this last time. I had a feeling in the back of my mind as the words came out of my mouth. As I was like, that Australian actor. And, and in, somewhere in the back of my mind, I was like, hang on a second. Isn't he from New Zealand? Isn't that like the worst thing you can say? <laughs> and so as soon as we finished recording, I went and checked. And sure enough, he was playing an Australian in the film I was talking about. Right. But he is actually from New Zealand. Now, while we're, while we're on the subject, though. I checked by going to his Wikipedia page, right? which I'm now going to send you a link to. Okay. And I want you to read aloud the first sentence. That's a very nice photograph. It is, isn't it? Okay, here we go. Sam Neill. Nigel John Dermot Neill. Born 14th of September 1947, known professionally as Sam Neill, is a man who kicks koalas and first achieve <laughs> leading roles in films such as etc. etc. <laughs> so he kicks koalas, does he? I guess he kicks koalas. There's, there's a, one of the funny things about Wikipedia is you, you you sort of take it as read and you get used to using it and stuff. And every now and then, these small pieces of Wikipedia vandalism <laughs> just brighten your day slightly i was literally i was looking at the wikipedia page today just before we started the recording to confirm the background on sam neil and uh, and i saw that and i thought brilliant that's the very first time i've ever seen wikipedia vandalism yeah it it happens every now and then it usually goes down fairly quickly mm. and so actually i lied a bit when i said that i checked it just before the recording i looked at it this morning which was a few hours ago now right and i was worried that it would be gone by the time we recorded. So I actually took a screenshot of it. Right. But it's still there, so so that's good. I don't know how long it'll last, but... Do you have an opinion on Wikipedia vandalism? Uh, I thought you were going to say... Is it a bad, terrible thing to do, or do you think it's funny, or...? I thought you were going to say, uh, do I have an opinion about kicking koalas? Or Sam Neill. Vis-a-vis <laughs> koala kicking. Right. Uh, well, yeah, actually, um, I think Wikipedia is, is wonderful and amazing, and I think we all take it far far too much for granted what it is and how amazing the whole concept of it is. I think because essentially being, you know, the de facto online encyclopedia, there is perhaps too much of a tendency to take everything that is written on Wikipedia as being absolute truth. Right. Where When you think about actually the way that Wikipedia is put together, you know, I guess it's the idea that if you get enough people's opinions on something and you have enough people looking at it and enough people editing or with the capability to edit something, you're going to come pretty close to the popular belief regarding a certain fact well not just a popular belief because they do have rules about citations and things so it's it's the consensus but it is the informed consensus right because right. the popular belief is often a long way off <laughs> right that right ideal so i mean with that in mind as a concept and as something that we have access to you know i think it's i think it's amazing and of course the ability to just sort of sit there look at it and just type in absolutely anything you can think of mm. and come up with a, a fairly good quite accurate or very accurate at times piece of information 
about any topic that you could imagine. I think that's right. that's a privilege and that's that's just amazing. One of the, the more amazing things about the internet, and there are many amazing things about the internet, but that right. is one of them. So the, the argument that people who hate Wikipedia vandalism say is that this is this amazing thing, we shouldn't take it for granted, we should appreciate it, and Wikipedia vandals are taking time away from the moderators who are volunteering, using their own time, usually for no pay, to maintain these pages. Right. And they have to waste loads of time fixing up these problems. But a counter-argument that occurred to me as you were talking there is that in a way they're providing a service because they are lightly reminding the reader to treat what they read on Wikipedia with a modicum of skepticism. Mm, that's true. <laughs> Which is a worthwhile reminder to have, that's I think. True. That's true. There is one thing that Wikipedia has robbed us of, which is not limited to Wikipedia, but in the internet in general. And I think that, I mean, I can remember at home when I was growing up, we did not have the Encyclopedia Britannia, Britannica? Britannica. Yeah, we didn't have that. We had another really great illustrated encyclopedia in like, you know, 12 volumes. Right. And just sort of on a Sunday afternoon raining outside and just sort of lying on your front on the carpet on the floor and, you know, just browsing through an encyclopedia mm. and just flipping through and looking at random pages and the great illustrations and reading a little bit. And, you know, that's kind of one thing that uh, the internet is not really very good at, you know, that kind of well, just I'd, browsing. I don't know if I would make the claim that Wikipedia has robbed us of the ability to idly read encyclopedia pages in our spare time. The Wikipedia hole is a well-known phenomenon, right? Where you're just right. reading one thing and then you click through to the next and you click through to the next. You're not flicking through from page to page. So you're not getting sort of an alphabetically almost random sorted list of topics. You're getting related topics. Right. But that's, you know, better in some ways, worse in other ways. Yeah, that's what I mean, though. The the That randomness, that arbitrariness of just flipping open and mm. finding something that you actually had no interest in and you wouldn't have thought to look up but because you're looking at it and it, it just happens to right. tickle your curiosity and you start reading, that's that's something that's uh, actually, you know, of course on Wikipedia, if you go to it, there is like a, you know, a random Wikipedia page widgets or something. And it is definitely a thing. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure I'm with you on that. There's, looking up a random thing on Wikipedia that you would never have thought to look up, mm. but just it comes up in conversation or you're reading another unrelated page on the internet and you think, oh, I don't know anything about that phenomenon. I'll just have a quick look on Wikipedia and stuff. Right. Yes, you don't tend to open to a random page, but you do, I think, definitely most people do, I certainly do, find yourself reading articles on Wikipedia that you would never have thought you would have been interested in, but you've just, you suddenly become super interested in them because Wikipedia has an almost infinite level of detail on everything if you're willing to click through it. Mm. I mean, it, it does happen, but it's just, I don't know, there's no fun to it. I mean, I think, you know, lying in front of a book and just flipping open to random pages and stopping when you find something interesting. Um, uh, yes, there is like a random random page widget on the on Wikipedia's homepage. How often do, do any of us use Wikipedia's homepage? Mm -hmm. uh, more often than not, at least, I, I guess. Again, painting with fat strokes as I was last time, I tend to get to Wikipedia via Google searches or right. other search engines. 
in your case, but um, it, it's kind of the same with search engines in general. You know, you go to a search engine, it's not going to just show you some random thing from the internet. That would be pretty scary, I think. <laughs> that well, yes, that would <laughs> that would yeah. be a dangerous endeavor, I think. But yeah. I don't know. I think I think I disagree with you on almost every point. <laughs> <laughs> I think that we definitely do. The internet, if anything, has expanded that you don't even need to be close to your copy of the encyclopedia britannica to find yourself randomly flipping through pages in an encyclopedia it is a different thing i'll give you that like the physical act of turning pages and choosing the volume from 12 volumes on your, on your shelf or whatever mm. that it that has a physical sort of nuance to it mm. that is nice and enjoyable but I don't think it's true that the internet means we don't just read random crap anymore. I mean, we do, we definitely do. <laughs> so I think that uh, just actually yesterday I was um, in the city centre in Stockholm and I had a little bit of time to kill before a doctor's appointment. Right. So I decided to walk into a bookshop mm. and I haven't been to a bookshop for quite a while. Mm. And, you know, of course, uh, I think Station 13 listeners are well aware of my ravenous appetite for literature. Did you pick up a new copy of The Silmarillion? No, I, <laughs> I, no, I didn't actually. Um, I was actually not having done it for a while, just wandering through a bookstore. I found actually it quite refreshing and quite interesting, mm. that feeling again of just being surrounded by complete randomness. It is sort of, oh, here's a history section. I would rarely ever go to amazon.com and start browsing through top sellers in the in the history section but just seeing what was right there and I'm just walking past it and I'm just sort of looking at the covers and maybe grabbing a few books flipping it over and realizing that I really can't understand any of the Swedish and putting it back and you know oh yeah it was a Swedish bookshop I forgot about that yeah. detail <laughs> I was listening to your story there <laughs> that's right and um just wandering across and then there's like this there's an English section and then there's like English section for science fiction fantasy novels and oh here we go and have a look at this and flip that over and read it oh that looks that this seems kind of interesting put that back and you know keep walking and oh there's a cd section as well wow they still sell cds mm -hmm. and there's like a, a section on i don't know like country and western music or something like that that normally i wouldn't really actively go out and actually shop for mm. i think just the experience of being surrounded by all of these things where the shop has curated it for me and i'm just right sort of gliding through it and being distracted here and there by things that normally I wouldn't look up. Right. As opposed to having everything available to you. I mean, I, I definitely agree with that, I think. That's why Amazon has opened a physical bookstore. They obviously agree as well. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, the internet kind of works the other way, right? You know, you have a specific interest in mind and you go and investigate it and then that leads you down like a funnel with the, you start at the narrow end and you come out at the, the wide end. Mm. It's certainly, I'm not saying that it's impossible to have a similar kind of experience of just sort of browsing and having things tickle your curiosity and heading off in a direction that you weren't expecting. That's, of course, certainly possible. But it's, it seems to feel like it requires a, a conscious effort to actually create that situation when you're using the internet, whereas... If you just happen to be in a bookstore and you just happen to be, you know, letting your gaze wander around the spines and, and the different sections and just walking mm. through and, oh, that's interesting. Oh, look at this. Here's a cookbook. You know, I would, I would never, ever go to Amazon.com and browse through cookbooks, but seeing as it's right, right there and just flip it open, oh, there's a recipe for, for something like this. And, you know, that, I think that experience 
is mirrored is also on, on Wikipedia where you have this basically like a tiny little tip of the iceberg that you start off with and you're aware that underneath the surface of the water there is this massive, massive, expansive body of mm. knowledge and factual information mm. there for you to read and enjoy if you go and look for it or if you start following links to get down into that. Mm. Whereas with the experience of flipping through an encyclopedia through pages that, you know, you just have no idea what you're going to get, aside from maybe things that start with a letter A or, or however your encyclopedia is organised, mm. you know, I think um, the fun of that experience is, is somehow, I don't know, it's it just dulled down a little bit on the internet somehow. Mm. Well, yeah, I, d I definitely agree with you about the shops. I think physical shops offer something fundamentally different mm. from what online shops and online shopping offers you right and the ability to be surrounded by sort of variation not just the specific thing you were looking for but a lot of other stuff as well i mean I, to an extent you can say the same about newspapers as opposed to online news sources right which is another way in which this whole thing that is going on at the moment that everyone's worrying about about the increasing partisanship of people and of news sources as a sort of thing that's coming together you know on twitter everyone's in their own little bubble and you are seeing the opinions of people you already agree with so you don't realize this is big massive people that actually don't agree with you right and to some extent that is still true with newspapers like you'll probably buy a newspaper that aligns fairly closely with your beliefs and your interests mm. but a newspaper does have a limited amount of space in which they choose a selection of articles about a number of topics, some of which are sort of big news that everyone has to cover, but others are more selected. And that same idea of curation that you're getting in shops. Hmm. And so as you flick through a newspaper, I think you get, you get that experience a little bit of reading about things that you would otherwise maybe not have thought to read about. And even though on news websites you do get the links to other stories in the sidebar or at the bottom mm. they're usually algorithmically selected to be related stories right and um, more often than not i don't click on them whereas with newspaper i do try and read through the thing right so that's another case in which i think that's true of all of these things, I think Wikipedia suffers from this the least. Okay. So it's funny that we're talking about it in that, in that context, because I can see what you mean, but I think Wikipedia comes the closest to giving you that experience that you also get with the paper encyclopedia, with the added bonus that it has hyperlinks. So you don't have to sort of, if you're interested in a thing that you read in paragraph three of your article in your paper encyclopedia and you want to read more about it, you don't have to dig out volume 14 and find page 273 paragraph six or whatever you know mm. so i uh, so anyway wikipedia is great <laughs> do you um do you listen to radio at all because the radio is another interesting one that i actually recently rediscovered radio mm. back when i was in japan prior to coming to sweden because of some logistical complications with our transition here to sweden there was an extended period of time when we had very, very little stuff. Uh, most of it was in a shipping warehouse. And I found a really great app for, I mean, there's loads of radio apps mm. for the iPhone, which can play for, you know, streamed radio stations from all across the world. Right. And being without any kind of 
you know, I had uh, a limited internet connection and I had none of my music collection and I found that radio was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I, I love radio. I actually, I've always listened, well, always, for quite a long time, since I was small, really, and my friend, other Alex in England, introduced me to radio and Radio 4, which is Britain's sort of BBC Radio 4 is the main kind of talk radio channel. Right. And so I've always listened to quite a lot of it. When I Before I moved to Japan, for the two years before I moved to Japan, I didn't have a television. And I did have a nice sort of hi-fi digital radio set right. that I would listen to. And so for that, for that whole time, I would come home. And I was working in a job that involved quite a lot of crunch then. Mm. So it, it was nice coming out. I'd sort of get home at like 11 fairly often at night with a pizza and just whack that in the oven and turn on the radio and listen to the original radio version of Flight of the Concords okay. yeah. <laughs> and things like that. Another New Zealand, yeah. not Australian. They are most definitely from New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the radio version is set in England, not in, set in London, not New York. Right. So that's interesting. Anyway, so I'd listen to that or other things and, and have you know a, a drink and, and my pizza, and that was a nice way to spend the evening. I kind of fell off it a little bit after moving to Japan, mm. and then I started listening to podcasts, and now I listen to a lot of podcasts of the programs that I used to listen to on radio. Oh, okay. like the BBC puts out The Archers, for example, right. which is a, a very long-running, so I think maybe the world's longest-running soap, mm. certainly radio soap. It's a radio program, but they release a podcast for it. And so that's how I listen to it. I see. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm going to kind of argue with, play devil's advocate for, for what I was saying earlier, okay. arguing with myself here. But the idea of curated content versus content that you go in and choose for yourself and go in and investigate and select for yourself. Mm. This is kind of the opposite argument of what I was saying earlier. When you compare, for example, radio to something like Spotify, especially in my profession, Spotify is a fantastic resource because it's all there, basically. Mm. You know, if you want to go and reference a certain piece of music or you want to go and, you know, get an idea for a certain genre of music that you're not particularly familiar with that you need need some knowledge about or whatever, you know, Spotify is a fantastic resource for that. Right. It's not, not really such a great resource for just discovering new music. It's all there. You know, there's a lot of great features to help you with discovering new music. You know, you... As soon as you go to your account, you've got all of these playlists that are recommended for you that are selected by algorithms uh, made by other people, which contain other people's idea of of good music that match the certain playlist theme. And, you know, you can click on them and have a listen to music that you may not have heard before. Mm. But it's funny, uh, where was it that I, I can't remember if it was an interview that I read or somebody that I was talking to, and they said that, Spotify is here and, and we have access to all of this music and now I'm just not listening to music anymore. Right, yeah, 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 I sort of know what they mean. And whereas with the radio, sure, you know, you could say that, I mean, this DJ, this person who's selecting the music, they are curating the music for me. Right. Why should they know what good music is? You know, why why should I be forced into having to trust their opinion about what good music is when you know, how is it that I can know that this person has a genuine idea of good music and is not missing even better music somewhere? Well, you can't, yeah. but they are, I mean, they are professionals. So that is, that is part of the job, right. right? Is being aware of music. Yeah. But as a means for discovering new music, mm. 
it's second to none, really. Radio is fantastic, you know. And uh, mm. nowadays, of course, you, on with internet radio and streamed radio stations, you can find radio stations that are themed on any kind of genre that you're interested in from from all around the world, mm-hmm. and it's fantastic. You know, you could get like '80s rock from France. Was one, there's this great? I uh, can't remember what it's called, Cherie FM or something like that, which is like a mm-hmm. was like an '80s rock radio station from France with French adverts. Mm. in between the songs, which is great. <laughs> Even though you can't understand them, this is something kind of cool about that. But uh, it's just fantastic. You, know, you just put it on and, you know, you eventually you, you start to learn which radio stations are closer to your taste right. uh, and play more songs that you're likely to really enjoy. Right. That is a sort of a shift that is sort of happening. Whereas with the older media, you would have people who curate things for you and you learn to adjust yourself. You learn which thing to listen to to get something closest to what you want, right? Whether right. it's you know radio or whether it's a newspaper, whatever it might be. Right. With this new, brave new world that we're coming into, the idea is that algorithms do a lot of the curation, and so they try and adjust the curation to match you rather than you adjusting your behavior right. to fit with whatever is going to be the, the best fit. Right. But there is something to be said for uh, adjusting yourself. <laughs> mm. That is the key to expanding your horizons, right? If you're never willing to try something new, then you're going to be quite limited in, in what you're ever going to experience. So. Yeah, that's true. So uh, while we're on the topic of music, recently there has been a, another sad passing of a a very significant musician. Mm. Did you catch that news? I did, yes. I was, my Facebook was full of it for a day, I think. Yeah, we were, of course, talking about Malcolm Young, the uh, rhythm guitarist from ACDC. Now, he is Australian, right? He's not from New Zealand. <laughs> I think he might be British. Oh, really? I'm not sure. Let me just pull up Wikipedia here. Scottish Australian. There we go. Well, we're both right. Because ACDC is an Australian band, right? He was born in Scotland, but his origin is Sydney, Australia. Right. That's interesting. So, yeah, a very, very sad loss for rock and roll. I mean, as a bit of a comment about ACDC, you know, I think growing up in Australia, you could not escape the sound of ACDC, especially if you were a child of the 80s as I was, mm. pulling up at a traffic light and having some guy in his uh, his Holden with his window right, right down next to you playing you know, You Shook Me All Night Long or uh, Back in Black or one of those classic mm. ACDC songs really, really loud and as like a an eight-year-old or a seven-year-old thinking, <laughs> wow, that's really, uh, that's really loud. <laughs> it never really – well, I grew up uh, really being fairly obsessed with highly, highly technical music mm. and only really when I gained an appreciation of the power of emotion in music – and the power of just vibe and feeling in music beyond technique mm. did I really, really come to appreciate ACDC. And it's interesting because ACDC, if you listen to what they're doing, mm. especially the instrumentation, the arrangement, uh, and their use of tension mm. is masterful. And it's interesting that, you know, when I was younger and only interested in, you know, the fastest licks and, you know, the most complicated rhythms and the most right. obtuse, ridiculous harmon- harmonic progressions and stuff like that. It never, I just, oh, it's just kind of simple, simple rubbish, really. But then now, 
well, I should say the past 10, 15 years or so, mm-hmm. I've really come to appreciate just the, the, the quality of arrangement and the ideas and just the power of the simple feelings that these songs convey. And much of that is Malcolm Young. And Malcolm Young being their rhythm guitarist, I think a lot of the songs were kind of born from catalysts that Malcolm would bring to the band. Mm. And you combine this kind of like, it's sort of like rock and roll minimalism in a, in a way, isn't it? You're so stripped back. Right. And they've got a lot of blues influence, right, as well. Like. Yeah. I mean, just that rhythm section, though. You know, Malcolm Young on rhythm guitar mm. and uh, Cliff Williams on bass and Phil Rudd on drums. You know, Phil Rudd was a very sort of blue-collar, just straight straight ahead, four on the floor, you know, very, very basic but very solid rhythms. Mm. And um, Cliff Williams had this big, round, fat tone that he would add underneath that. And then Malcolm's got this... Uh, just very, very simple, very, very concise, extremely, extremely, actually funky mm. rhythm guitar parts, all in, of course, centered in this this genre of rock and roll. And then, of course, you put on Angus Young and um, Brian Johnson. Is that right? Uh, sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> so you put those very flashy showmen on top of this solid, solid, solid rhythm section. And just what a combination. You know, it's just like how to describe ACDC. Solid. Mm. I didn't realise. I've just seen that Axl Rose joined them last year. Yeah, that's because um, Brian Johnson, I think he's almost deaf now. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> and uh, his health is his, uh, is not in a, in a great uh, place. And uh, so because the other band members were eager to continue touring activities as ACDC, mm. they decided to bring on a new frontman, which is the reason why Axl Rose joined. Oh, wow. I can sort of see how that would work, but it still seems like, wow, that is a mashup, hey? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, ACDC. Are you a big fan of ACDC? I wouldn't say a big fan. I listened to some of their stuff uh, when I was a teenager. I bought a couple of their albums, but I never, I didn't get into them in a really big way. So mm. not super, sort of, I couldn't, I couldn't name too many of their songs or anything. Right. If you check out, um, I think the best examples of ACDC and the essence of what they're about is if you look at a few video clips, specifically the music clip for um, Back in Black Mm. and You Shook Me All Night Long Mm. and perhaps Thunderstruck. Right. These are, those three, I would say, are the greatest examples of what they're all about. Because I always, somehow, I think of Highway to Hell first. Oh, yeah. That is the first song that comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the lyrics are very, very witty. It's like full of mm. full of sexual innuendo. Like the whole thing is basically <laughs> sexual innuendo. And um, yeah, just that solid rhythm section. Yeah, really. I mean, rock and roll. There are a few bands that really, really define what it is great about rock and roll. Mm. And uh, I think on the blue collar, just sort of uh, everybody's rock and roll <laughs> kind mm. of. <laughs> and it's fun it's supposed to be fun. Right. i mean i i'm an ex-goth and love black metal and all the rest of it but there there is something to be said for that era of uh, acdc is is one band but you know other bands like i think iron maiden as well had that sense of they're kind of taking the mick most of the time mm. and and just having fun with it you know just the the music itself is fun right you listen right. to it and and you know it's just fun and energetic and i don't know it's not you know i like doom rock as much as the next man but probably even more because the next man is probably not into doom rock (laughs) (laughs) but 
yeah, they, I, I do enjoy that kind of fun era of, of rock and roll music. Yeah. From that era, probably um, I would also go with Queen and The Police as well mm. for sort of 70s rock. I mean, they're slightly different. Of course, Queen is much more theatrical. And again, you've got that, you know, the fantastic solid rhythm section with John Deacon and uh, Roger Taylor mm. on drums, uh, John Deacon on bass. And then, of course, you've got um, Brian May and Freddie Mercury, of course, as the, the showman out the front. Right. But Queen has always struck me as a bit more both musically complex and sort of highly produced. Yeah, far more. Than ACDC, which is, you know, a bit more raw. Far more. Yeah, ACDC I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe as raw simply because, yeah, actually the uh, my favourite ACDC album is Back in Black. Mm. That was produced by Mutt Lang, who is known for being extremely precise and extremely strict okay. <laughs> and, and basically doing things again and again and again until it's exactly right. Right. And I think that um, for ACDC, especially in those earlier years, you know, that much of that character where it's, it's so tight, mm. uh, it's so precise, so minimal, but so loud and so driving and so full of power, mm. that great contrast between... Um, because when you say raw, I, t- I tend to think of it being a bit more loose and a bit more sort of slightly out of control. Right. Whereas right. ACDC is very, very, very controlled, mm. and uh, that that's part of um, part of their appeal, I guess. Queen also, Queen also is very, very right, very tightly controlled, and everything is very calculated. ACDC has this wonderful way of actually being calculated, but not sounding like it. Right. Yeah. I should give them another listen because maybe I've just never appreciated that side of it. Yeah, that's definitely down to Malcolm Young. You know, that's his his style, and you can def- you can hear that, and you can see it when you watch him playing as well. Mm-hmm. You know, he, this, this him and Cliff Williams and Phil Rudd are the uh, are the sort of the, the straight guys at the back of the band, just keeping it down, just doing going about the business really. Mm. Anyway, Malcolm Young, rest in peace. Sad loss for for. For the world of rock and roll, but um, what a legacy to leave behind. Indeed. How's your search for a band going? Didn't you say you were looking for other people in Sweden to play with? Yeah, so uh, I have discovered there. <laughs> I've discovered two amazing things about looking for a band. Actually, three. Number one, you you would think in this day of software as a service and social networks and all this mm. kind of stuff, you'd think that there would be kind of like a social network for people looking for bands. Mm. I haven't found it. If anybody knows of one, especially one that's kind of relevant in Northern Europe, specifically Stockholm, then uh, please uh, visit our Station 13 Reddit and uh, leave a link for me because, uh, you know, when you search for band search or band find, there's, there is one called Band Finder, but it, and that seems rather active, but uh, look has a website that hasn't been updated since the 90s, it looks like. Hmm. I wonder if there's a group on Facebook or something like that. There is, and that's so. The first thing I discovered is that this is uh, if you're a a venture capitalist and you're uh, wanting to make a new startup, something internet related, <laughs> just make a social network for musicians looking for other musicians mm. because it doesn't look like that there is one. So there's an open open opportunity there. The other two things that I'm discovering is a ninety percent of band action in Sweden is happening in Gothenburg and not in Stockholm. Oh, right. So I don't know what it is about Gothenburg, but there's a lot of bands over there and there's not much in Stockholm. I've heard they're a bit weird in Gothenburg. Maybe that's why. Yeah, that, that's probably why. <laughs> the other thing that I've discovered is that uh, 95% of the bands, a, a lot of them are looking for bassists, which is great. It looks like... That's you. 
Yes, yeah, bassists are the rare commodity, which is excellent because I am a bassist, but 95% of them are metal bands and all varieties of metal, like just these kind of subgenres of metal that I've never even heard of that only you would know. Right. Doom metal. Right, right. Right. <laughs> Speed metal and thrash metal and progressive metal and uh-huh. symphonic operatic metal and, you know, uh, I don't know, death metal, melodic death metal and, right. and uh, goth metal and glam metal. And I don't know what goth metal is. But... Country and western metal and hip-hop metal and uh, pop metal and I don't know. Mm. Isn't hip-hop metal just new metal? I was just kind of throwing those random genres okay. together. Most of the things you said sounded familiar. <laughs> okay. There's, there's only a couple that I thought, hang on, is he making these up? <laughs> right. So, I, uh, unfortunately, Danny, it looks like I'm probably going to have to be playing in a metal band here. There's nothing wrong with that. I, as we've mentioned before, you know, metal players are the most gentle, most softly spoken, most friendly, mm. most kind, most gracious people that you will meet. So that's good. Right. If I could have my way, and I've had a friend listen to me say this and then just tell me, well, you just put out an ad yourself and see if you can get people interested in that because it seems like you know exactly what you want to do. That's what I was gearing myself up to say, but carry on. Yes. What I want is a an 80s cover band. <laughs> of course you do. Yes, I do. And <laughs> practicing on weeknights, maybe, you know, a gig at a party or an event once a month or so. Uh-huh. Any particular band that you would cover or you'd cover a range of bands? Just a range of, you know, like Foreigner and Journey and Chicago and uh, Mm. Fleetwood Mac and maybe a bit of Depeche Mode and, you know, just sort of uh, 80s rock, 80s pop rock. When I first started playing in bands, I was very, very anti-covers band as probably, I I think most players go through that phase where it's like, no, I'm too good for that. Right. When I write my own music. (laughs) That's right. Now, Now, though, being in the privileged position of having a job that involves writing music all day, every day. (laughs) Sometimes you just want to get out and play the stuff, you know? Right. Well, yeah, you should, you should put out an advert, stick out, you could stick up an advert. You could put a thing on Facebook and ask people to share it. You could actually, those are the only two ideas I've got. Yeah. (laughs) I think, um, if I actually want to attract any attention, firstly, I'm going to have to say, I'm going to have to lie and say that I'm from Gothenburg. And secondly, I'm going to have to make it like an 80s metal cover band. So uh, you can't, you don't have to like, can't you? Isn't being from Adelaide exciting enough? Isn't that <laughs> Adelaide bassist looking isn't for? That, isn't that exotic? Yeah, I guess so. I'm not sure that people will be choosing uh, choosing to respond to my band ad because they think the bass this this guy is exotic. No, you do you. You make your 80s cover band for 80s synth pop and forget about metal. Yeah, I think I'll try. Actually, you know, I've, I have been really eager to uh, join a band here in Sweden because uh, I may have mentioned before that joining a band in Japan was uh, one of the most uh, fulfilling cultural experiences that I mm. uh, had when I was there. Mm. You did. You also said it was very good for your language. Right. You know, the funny thing is that when you go to a new country, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this feeling, if, especially if you're there by yourself, it's a little bit different for you and me in our positions moving to, you know, United States and Sweden respectively because we're together with our families. Right. When you are by yourself, it's a profoundly lonely experience, isn't it? Especially if you are not the kind of person to go out to drink at bars right. by yourself. Right. Which I'm not. I wasn't until I did it 
<laughs> I, I learned. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I think I remember that when I was in Japan, you know, I had some knowledge of Japanese because I studied, I studied at, at university and mm. was really eager to mix with Japanese people. Obviously, I'd just gotten to Japan, you know, you want to get in there. Right, right. And it's a profoundly lonely experience when you realize that, you know, you're surrounded by all of these people mm. and you can't talk to any of them. Not because of a language barrier, although that may be a problem, but you can't just sort of wander down the street in Japan and just pick a conversation with anybody. Right. And I can remember, like, I work from Monday to Friday. I was a language teacher. And then come Saturday, it's like, well, what am I going to do today? Well, I guess I'll go find some people. So I went to San Nomia, which is a really nice, compact metropolitan area next to Kobe in West Japan, and just sort of walking around surrounded by thousands of people <laughs> so many people everywhere mm. and just sort of they're all just drifting around me talking to each other and you know you just sort of feel so left out of all of it because you can't just grab somebody and say hey i'm alex let's have a conversation right. you can try that but it doesn't tend to work too well so it can be a, a profoundly lonely experience and the density of people that you uh, find yourself in makes no difference at all to the chances of actually getting into a situation where you can start interacting with people and making friends and making relationships right. and learning about people. I do think you have to make a sort of active effort to do that. And it's true that we're in a different situation this time around, both of us, because we've come with our families. That does make it less lonely. But it also gives us less impetus to put in that effort, I think. Exactly. And also less flexibility for doing that too, which is what I'm finding. Right. Especially with children, it makes it much more difficult to just sort of say, oh, I'm just going to go out and go to a, a music event tonight and chat to some people. You know, you can't really do that when you have right. kids around. Like along with the sort of loneliness, especially for the first couple of months in Japan, I definitely felt that as well. But along with that is kind of a, a sense of boredom. I almost don't want to say that because it sounds ungrateful and I really did enjoy my first few months in Japan. But... There's a lot of empty time. Mm. You've got no friends who are going to invite you out to do anything. You've got no, in my case, I had no furniture or anything in my house. So I'm literally just sitting in the corner of the one corner of my house, which has a bin in it because it's the closest thing I've got to a piece of furniture. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you've got, so you haven't really got anything to go on. So of course, for the first couple of months, like until you've found your place and kind of settled in a bit, not only do you have the loneliness of, of not having any people around you. But you also have this sense that you've got all this time that you don't really know what to do with. Right. And it's by trying to fill that time that you solve both problems, right? Right, right. But now, I think neither of those are, are the case. When you're moving with your family, you have your family, so you don't feel that sort of pressure of loneliness to go out and, and find people. Right. But you also have just a lot more things that you're responsible for and a lot more things that you have to do. So right. you don't have that same kind of ocean of time. Just to recount an experience that I had when I was in China, probably the, the first time that I've kind of come close to maybe something that is similar to depression was when I was in China and it was an incredibly stimulating experience. You know, I was there as an overseas student on a scholarship studying Chinese language at the university in Shanghai mm. in an international student's dormitory surrounded by like about 800 students from all around the world with the common language of Mandarin Chinese, which is, I was so lucky to have that experience. What, what a way to learn about the world, you know, from, mm. from all of these people of varying ages, 
everybody from different countries with with a common language. So I remember that in the mid-year break, all of a sudden everybody left and everybody went back to their respective countries. Mm. And there was like a handful of people left in the dormitory, most of whom I didn't actually know. I can remember that my, I think my ticket to leave for Australia was like one week after everybody else had left or, or or maybe I'd come back a week early. I don't exactly remember that detail, but I can remember that coming out of the, like every day being basically a roller coaster of new experiences and stimulation and challenges, intellectual challenges and emotional challenges and just this incredible sort of waterfall of new information for me mm. to handle every day. Mm. Suddenly all of that dropping out and becoming very, very quiet, nobody around, all of a sudden by yourself, entirely by yourself. And that stimulation and all of that um, activity that's happening for you is suddenly switched off. And I can remember that for that week, it was uh, extreme, like the, the most lonely that I've been in my life, actually. And I can remember that it's interesting. You, I, I found that eating a meal and sleeping the, these things that sort of punctuated mm. certain times during the day were kind of critical because it's it felt like that's all I had. Right. You know, I'd get up, eat breakfast, and then be thinking about lunch because that's the next thing that would be happening. Mm. And in between that time would be this painful boredom where I just, for some reason, it's, it's interesting, I think, perhaps the brain gets used to being stimulated and being challenged so much that when all of a sudden it's gone, it's like the brain has, or at least like my brain, had forgot that I was capable of creating my own entertainment, right. my own things for myself right. to do. You don't always have stimulation handed to you on a plate. sort of. Right. And so I'd, I'd end up just sort of sleeping. So I'd wake up, have breakfast, sleep, and then mm. wake up again and have lunch. Mm. And then dreading the hours until dinner uh, because I just wouldn't know what to do. So I'd end up again just sleeping. And when it's interesting that it's like there's two of you, you know, you sort of see yourself thinking, why not just go for a walk? Or, you know, you're in China. This is China in the late 90s when I was there. Why, there's so much to see and do if you if you want. It's all out there. Just get on a bus, ride in some random direction and, you know, mm. see what you find. Mm. There's like so many potential things I could have been doing, but none of those things were entering into my mind at all. Mm. And it was a really, really profoundly painful experience, actually, just because I, for some re reason I just couldn't, you know, my, I wasn't able to create things for myself to do. When I look back at it now, it just makes no sense at all. You know, right. there were so many things that I could have done. Right. But for some reason, none of it occurred to me at the time. And all I could think about was punctuating my day with mealtimes mm -hmm. and then trying to find the shortest route between those punctuations, i.e. sleeping, that I could. So it was uh, not, a, not a fun experience, but very... Um, you know, I reflect on that time a lot, actually, and I think about the importance of having some objectivity about how you're feeling and the importance of seeing the bigger picture and seeing the larger situation and not getting too wound up with a with a, a narrow vision of where you are in life or what's mm. going on at that particular moment. Yeah, it's funny. I, I had a sort of similar-ish experience. I was between first and second year at the first university that I went to, right. which is Oxford Brookes University, the other university in Oxford. 
Um, and I became very enamored when I went there with having left home. Mm. It was the first time I had moved away from home and lived on my own. Right. And I decided, okay, I'm 18, I've left home, I've gone to university, I live on my own now, well, in student halls, but, you know. And so I'm done, good, I'm responsible for myself, that's it now. Mm. And so I just didn't really ever go home, and I wasn't even that far from home. It was only a, an hour and a half or something like that on the train. Right. And I think most, you know, most students did go home every now and then. Uh, but I didn't really. And then, so I just assumed that over the summer holidays, I would stay. Hmm. And I, I didn't even really think about it. But I had a job. I, I was a very bad student at this first university. That's why there is a second university. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't go to very many lectures. But I had what was almost a full-time job working at an internet cafe in Oxford. Right which was a great experience. I met all sorts of people who were traveling through Oxford or who were studying at Oxford Uni that were from various countries and wanted to use the internet to write home or, you know, just casual users. And there was this big network of Counter-Strike players. Oh, yeah. There was the, the Russian students and the Chinese students. Wow. And they would all come in and play against each other, mm. the Russians versus the Chinese at Counter-Strike, which was quite something hearing them all shout insults at each other in russian and chinese <laughs> respectively wow fascinating so great experience but i just didn't stop to think that in the summer holidays usually students go home right and they take a break from university and they might get a job over the summer holidays but they don't usually work the same job they work during term time unless they happen to live in that area None of that even really occurred to me. So mm. without thinking, I was like, well, obviously, I'll, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and stay in Oxford. And then I realized, slash was reminded, that I was only allowed to stay in student halls during term time. I couldn't just stay in my room in student accommodation over the summer. Oh, okay. So I had to scrabble around to find a place to stay. Mm. And turned out the university had one set of student halls that they did open during the summer for international students coming to. Quite often people would come and do a summer course in English before they started their proper, you know, degree course or whatever. Right. So there was a room I could rent there, but it was, I guess it was by the night. So it was cheaper to rent it like four days a week mm. than it was just to rent it in a block over the entire summer. Mm. So what I ended up doing was working, f I think, five days a week and managing that by staying four nights a week. So I would go home at the weekend and then I would go to Oxford. And because I had, I wasn't guaranteed to get the same room or anything, I couldn't set up a room to stay in. So I would just go with a sleeping bag mm. and enough clothes to last me the week and a book, mm. paper book back then. And just sort of stay in this kind of soulless, tiny room mm. that I had not made my own because I was never going to be staying there for more than four days at a time. Right. And I worked the night shift. So I worked from five in the evening until midnight basically right so i would wake up late-ish wander into and this this is actually a really nice life so i it's weird that i sound like i'm complaining about it but mm. <laughs> i'll describe it anyway 
I would wander into Oxford, which is probably my favorite city in the world. And I would have a nice breakfast at the cafe, which was next door to the internet cafe where I worked. And I knew everyone in that area because I you know, spent so much time hanging around there. So I just get chatting to, chatting to people. And then I'd basically wander from cafe to restaurant to restaurant mm. over the course of the day while talking to people I knew. Mm. And then I knew all the sort of waiters at all the restaurants that I used to frequent as well. And just go from place to place and eat delicious food and talk to the staff. And then, and then, and then when it came to sort of five o'clock and I, I would go off to work, you know, work until midnight. And I actually really liked the job as well. <laughs> Uh, this is sounding not that similar to your experience. No. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, but the thing about it was that there was, it was kind of directionless. Right. So even though all the things I was doing were actually fun and nice, mm. and I wasn't just sleeping to pass the time or uh, wondering how long it's going to be till my next meal or anything like that, usually th- that value was zero because I was just constantly eating through the day. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I just didn't have, it wasn't going anywhere. And I knew university wasn't going very well. Mm. And so I was just kind of keeping the ball rolling with no real direction or aim. And I knew it had to end at some point. Mm. And most of the people had gone home. So in that sense, that's what reminded me about it from your story is that all the people I'd shared a a flat with and that had had all left. So it was kind of just me. Mm. But that was, you know, that lack of direction can really sort of bring you down, I think. Yeah. Even if you're having fun and eating at nice restaurants and enjoying the Oxford summer. <laughs> yeah. Danny, sounds, that sounds like a great time. I, I would have <laughs> happily, happily swapped you with my... Uh... I've often sort of described it as the best and worst time of my life because <laughs> right. I will never, ever be that free to be totally irresponsible again. Right. Like, n- no cares. and No, so long as I get to work on time... I'm fine. I can do whatever I like right. and I can buy whatever music gear I want because I won't have to pay for it until 10 years down the line right. when I'm thinking, why did I spend all that money on music gear in Oxford? <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it was utterly free, hmm. but it was also the closest I've come to just falling apart and not you know, thinking I'm going to get in a rut where I don't achieve anything. Mm. And it was touch and go. If I hadn't had the chance to go to that second university that I went to, and then, you know, I did quite well there and and went on and worked in games and got to here. You know, if things had worked out a little bit differently and I hadn't had that opportunity, I would not have a degree and probably have had a very different sort of career and certainly couldn't have moved to Japan because you need a degree to get an engineer's visa in Japan. Mm. So, you know, it is an interesting, you look back and consider and think, well, I don't regret that time because I think that is an experience that you only get a shot at once. Mm. (laughs) And even then it's a risk. Mm. But I appreciate that I will never be able to do it again. And I'm glad I didn't do it for much longer than I did. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I am definitely envious because uh, the experience that I had was uh, much more... um, (laughs) <laughs> much more tra- traumatic, I guess, than <laughs> the way that you describe your uh, going from restaurants, talking to people that you know, and working a job and getting money for it. You know, it was tough times. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons I think where I felt trapped and less incentive to actually do things was uh, I didn't have any money, so th- th- there is that. But um, I guess um, th- there's this uh, 
in Japanese, there is this phrase, shiawase, mm. which means happiness. Right. And for uh, Japanese people, part of shiawase, happiness, is a sense of stability and a sense of sort of a pattern to life, you know, where you can predict what's coming next. Mm. And that is a kind of a sought-after thing in a sense that, you know, and it's, it's a cultural thing, I guess, you know, Japan being an earthquake culture, <laughs> who wouldn't want the ability to have a nice predictable daily existence where you know what's coming next and there, there isn't going to be any sudden upsets that are going to level your house and put you out of a home and, <laughs> right. you know, potentially cause uh, emotional trauma like an earthquake does. So the idea of shiwase comes together with this idea of stability and the idea of things being in a rhythm and things being predictable. But it's interesting how that if you have too much of that, it's often actually quite damaging in a way that if there is too much predictability and too much of the same and too much stability in a sense, it can be almost debilitating and you sort of lose, at least my own experience then was that you lose, you lose track of the fact that there are all these other possibilities out there you just sort of don't seem to see them, which is uh, right. it's a very interesting psychological state to be in. That mm. actually uh, leads us nicely into one topic that um, we've been wanting to talk about on the show for quite some time, and this is going to go from talking about soft topics to talking about very hard topics, to-do apps. Uh -huh. So while we're on the topic of sort of keeping yourself organized and, and making sure that you're always pushing forward with achieving the things that you want to do, there are countless, countless ways to actually organize that and what, and sort of techniques for motivating yourself and keeping yourself moving. And we're in a kind of a golden age now of uh, to-do apps and to-do resources online. And of course, uh, you can buy books about great ways to organize yourself and it doesn't all have to be digital. It can be analog as well and mm. ways to create a notebook to keep yourself focused on, you know, dividing your big complicated objectives and goals down into actionable, actionable, manageable chunks and stuff like that. So I guess I'll throw it over to you. Do you use any to-do apps or how do you keep yourself organized and moving forward towards your larger objectives? Right. So I don't really. I've tried many times and I keep trying, but it's a funny thing because I just can't really get into them. And I feel like I should be the kind of person who would be really into them. Mm. So it's a, a funny sort of juxtaposition. And I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and read a lot of websites and follow a lot of people who who swear by them and use use multiple to-do apps, right. different apps for different ranges of tasks. I've tried a great many. I might as well bring them up and look. I think I have an entire folder for them on my iPhone, maybe. Wow. I'd be interested to uh, to know which ones you've tried. Obviously, I've tried the Reminders app that comes with iOS. I've also used Clear, which was mm. a popular one yep. uh, when it came out because it's very simple. Yeah, I have Things on both Mac and iOS. Oh yeah, which is the closest I've come to kind of successfully using one frequently. Yeah, I've used omnifocus a little bit on the mac but not on ios yep and i use another one called epic win for a little while yeah did you know about that one yes. it's actually made by a, a friend of a friend who i met at gdc a few years ago and he told me he was working on it so right i got that when it came out that's a sort of interesting play where you you try and 
turn the to-do list into a game yeah. by having it so that by achieving your tasks, you get experience points and you win things. Mm. And the, it's a nice idea, but I hate grinding in games. Right. So I, I don't know why I didn't realize that it just wouldn't appeal to me. <laughs> right, right. And I've also used a thing called Task Paper, which is a very simple yeah. uh, text-based to-do app. Mm. And uh, I tried org mode, you know, Emacs's org mode for a little while as well. Oh, yes. Yep. The only other thing I've tried, which is not an app, but it's an, an analog method, which is called Bullet Journal. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of that one? No, tell me about that. Bullet Journal, I'll stick a link in the show notes, but it's a, it's a technique for trying to sort of arrange your calendar and to-do items and things like that mm. using a pen and paper journal where you have a, a daily planner and then you have a a section where you're thinking over the course of the next six months. So you're putting sort of important dates and things you want to achieve over the course of the next six months. And also once a month, you also think through all the things you want to achieve in that month. Right. I tried that for a little while, but none of it sticks. I just, I don't get that much out of it. I always feel like if I wasn't filling in this app, I would be doing the thing. Mm. And there are things that I'm liable to forget because I am a very sort of forgetful, absent-minded person. So there is value sometimes when there's something important that I need to remember mm. to writing it down to ensure that I don't forget to do it. But more often than not, I find just writing that down in the notes app as a sort of just free-form note of don't forget to do this thing, which I then delete when I've done it, mm. is enough for me. So I don't, I don't have that sort of... I don't get any enjoyment out of it and I don't feel like I get a huge amount of value mm. out of this process of sitting down and considering the tasks that you have ahead and considering the big projects and how you're going to break that down into smaller tasks. Mm. And I, I keep trying it because I feel like I must be wrong right. and one day I'll find the way that will fit me but I've yet to find it. And so that, that's kind of why I'm interested to hear your opinion on it, because I know you're kind of at the other end of the scale to me. Before I tell you about my own experience, I'm interested to know why you think that you suspect that, oh, it must be something wrong with me, or I, I must be, I'm missing out on this, and this should be something, it, it's something that I should be doing. Where does that come from, knowing that, you know, you've tried all of these different options, none of them tend to stick for very long, Mm. Is it a sense that, you know, you read about very successful people who keep themselves organized with certain things here? Or is it a sense that as a professional, it's impossible to do this without some kind of tool? You must have some kind of app and there's some kind of pressure from somewhere that making you think that you should be doing this? Or where does that come from, that idea that this should be something that you're using? I think it's it's partly seeing other people sort of rave about it. Okay. But I think there's also... I think there's a tendency, especially among sort of programmery engineer types, mm. to want to try and hack everything, right, right? Right, And And it's kind of obnoxious and annoying. <laughs> like everything has to have the word hack applied to it, like life hacks right, and right, things like that. Right. But but it is, it is a tendency that exists, I think. Mm. And we tend to try and look for easy solutions and ways to automate things and, you know, ways to take common patterns and make them simpler so that we can focus on the actually interesting things, right? right? That is, there's a lot of what you do in the job of programming. And so I think people, people of that bent have a tendency to try and apply that 
to other things in their lives. Right. And many do quite successfully. Now, I am, I think, that kind of person. Mm. And I read these things. And as I read them, it sounds good. Oh, okay. I don't read them and think, no, this is stupid. Right. I'm reading it and thinking, that sounds like it'd be really good. Like if you just spend a little bit of time up front considering how the whole thing's going to pan out mm. and you just tick off all the jobs then you'll have much more of an idea of how much is left to go and you might be able to organize your time more efficiently to be able to do it. And I can sort of see all these benefits logically. Mm. So that, that's why I think the idea seems appealing to me. I see. But I just never actually, I just get frustrated and bored when I try and actually do it. And then I, I, I just find myself not doing it. I fall out of the habit mm. very quickly. Mm. Interesting, yeah. There are definitely multiple kinds of people and there are definitely systems that work for some people and systems that work for other people. Mm. One thing that I think that is is true, which these the existence of these systems teach us, is that, you know, the human brain has a capacity and it's really convenient to be able to take something and offload it into some kind of system and then not think about it and trust that the system will keep track of it for you. Right. So you yeah. don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. And that, that is the benefit I, I always think is great about spaced repetition, for example, which we talked about in an earlier episode. Right. That's the system that I use in order to learn vocabulary and kanji and things like that. Right. Yeah. And I think just the, the acceptance and the admitting to yourself that I have limits with what I can remember that I have to do or the extent to which I can break down in my head a large project into actual achievable chunks, actually admitting that that is a challenging thing and that is difficult and handing that off to a system so that you can actually get on with doing those things. You know, the existence of all of these systems to me basically just is um, a result of this fact that right. people's brains are limited. So that aspect of all of these systems I really like. So to cut to the chase, I, I'm using OmniFocus at the moment, and OmniFocus is the one that, for me, that has stuck the longest. I think I've been using it for maybe about six or seven years, I guess, mm -hmm. so quite a long time. And um, leading up to OmniFocus, I also tried lots of other alternatives. I tried, um, let's see, there's Wonderlist, and I tried Todoist, mm -hmm. and I tried... Trello and I tried mind maps and I tried an analog thing in a notebook and there's loads of others anywhere that I tried. The two ones that have been the most successful for me are mind maps and OmniFocus. Mm -hmm. So just to go to OmniFocus first. So OmniFocus is basically kind of like the Rolls-Royce of to-do apps on, on Mac and iOS basically. Mm -hmm. I say Rolls-Royce in the sense that it, it's very expensive I think it is probably the most expensive to-do app that you can get, and it's for iOS and for Mac. You have to buy them separately for Mac and iOS, right? That's right, yeah. So, Do you have both, or do you...? Yes, I actually have it all. <laughs> right. And I use it all, amazingly. Mm. So actually, um, I started off thinking, well, it's really expensive, I don't know, but you know, it's it gets lots of good reviews, and reading about it, it seems to make a lot of sense. So I'll, try, I'll just buy the iOS version first. Mm. And for about a year or so, I was pretty heavily into the iOS version mm. and then um, eventually realized, oh, actually, I'm still using this. Well, I may as well get the Mac version. And that's when it all kind of came together very nicely. Right. So OmniFocus is very flexible, but basically it's kind of like a software version of the GTD system. 
and I can't remember the name of the author of the book. I think it was Alan something. Alan. Getting things done. David Allen. David Allen. I knew there was an Allen in there somewhere. David Allen. So basically, I'm not going to pretend to know that much about the way that GTD is supposed to work, but my understanding of it is get into the system as much as possible, as easily as possible, Mm. is one thing. So basically, whatever it takes, as soon as you think of something, oh, I should probably do that, then you write it down and you put it into the system. Mm. Later, you are supposed to go through and review what you've put in there and sort it out so that it's it's in the right place and so that right. uh, things are grouped together or things are broken down nicely. Right. So don't think about breaking apart your projects right at the moment when you have the idea. Mm. Just put it in there and leave it there, forget about it, and then as a ritual, once a day, go through what you've put into the system and figure out what should go where. Mm. So that's one thing. The second thing is the idea of what they call contexts in uh, GTD. Right. A context is basically, it can be very fairly flexible, but the, the loose idea is that you have a context with which you will be performing a task. And I think the classic GTD, at least the way OmniFocus starts off, is that you set up context like at my desktop computer, on my phone, right. while I'm jogging, while I'm in the shower, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And basically you filter, you have all of the tasks that you've had throughout the day and you assign them into projects and then you assign each one of the tasks uh, context. So the idea is that when you have downtime and you are in the shower or you are on the bus uh, and you've only got your phone, you can pull out your list of things that you could be doing on your phone mm. and have a look at, through them and see if there's any that you can actually do right there on your phone. For example, email somebody or message Danny to ask him about this or whatever. Right. So fast entry, easy entry, regular review, and sorting things into contexts so that they can be acted on wherever you are pretty much all the time. That's my loose understanding of the way that GTD works, at least the way it works in the context of uh, OmniFocus. Right. So OmniFocus itself is actually very flexible, so you don't have to adhere to that system. Myself, I group the tasks into more of a loose kind of categorization of what they actually are. So I have context for communication, maintenance, production, research, payments, and standby. Mm-hmm. So basically, anything that involves emailing or messaging or calling or talking to somebody, I put into communication. Maintenance are things like... Um, you know, buy milk right? <laughs> or uh, install latest version of Unity or whatever. Right. Production is production for tasks that actually require producing something. Research is just things that I just happen to be thinking of. Oh, I might look up that later. Payments is obviously for regular payments. And then standby is if I have done something and I'm waiting for a response, then I will shift it into standby right. so that I can have a list of everything that I'm waiting for a response and follow up things that are late. Right. So contexts are organized like that. But I've also tried in OmniFocus organizing context by the amount of time that's required to do something. Oh, that's interesting. For example, five minutes, mm. 20 minutes, one hour, or, you know, several days. Mm. And so the idea there is that, you know, you start off the morning, you pull up OmniFocus, and OmniFocus allows you to set flags on tasks and you look at all the things. Maybe I'll pick one long task for example, this piece of music for this game and then like four medium ones and like, you know, six short ones for the day, flag them and then go through them through the day. Right. 
Can a single task be assigned to more than one context? No. Okay. No. The other thing that I've tried with OmniFocus is actually taking the contexts and making them the tool that I use to do that thing. So, for example, browser right. or email or audio software like Renoise or Reaper or the things that I'm using to do work right. uh, or Photoshop or Illustrator or stuff like that. <laughs> Unfortunately, that didn't work out so well just because these days so much is done in a browser. <laughs> <laughs> everything goes in the browser. Everything just ends up going into the browser context so it didn't really make much sense. So anyway, it's kind of flexible and there are different different ways that you can set it up how you need one thing that OmniFocus does very, very well uh, compared to the competition is it has the ability to set a task as being deferred until a certain date. Right. The idea of that is basically if you have something that you want to put into the system, but you don't want to see it every day when you're going and looking through the things that you have to do right. because it's not relevant right now, you can set it to be deferred and in that situation when it's set up like that you won't actually see it until the date that you specify and then it will appear there right so again that's the idea that you know don't overload yourself with all of this stuff instead just sort of have a limited slice of everything that you have to do Mm -hmm. available to you and have things left to the system to decide when you need to see it so yeah so i've found that omnifocus works well however there are some things that are um, inconvenient about it and things that, by the same token, are important to remember if these kinds of systems are to work. Mm. One of those is getting used to the level of detail that's required when you're entering tasks, and that's really, really difficult. Right, not too much, not too little, right? Exactly. Right. Because too much and everything becomes just really small and kind of silly. Mm. (laughs) Switch on computer you know, click on browser icon, (laughs) too little and the system kind of, you just have these big things that are in there and you just end up doing the same thing every day because it takes so long. Right. So figuring out what level of detail is necessary takes a little time. Mm. The other thing is making sure that you open it every day. Mm. And that actually sounds obvious. No, I think that's where I always fall down. <laughs> that is where it all, you know, I, I keep going with it for like a week and then a day or two I don't open it and then it's like, ah, no. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So OmniFocus is, is really good. There's the other alternative that I would be using if it wasn't OmniFocused is Todoist. Right. Todoist is a, because the one thing about uh, OmniFocus is that it's only on Mac. And now that I do production work on a PC, I have a Mac next to me as well. But with the production work on the PC, sometimes it's just handy to be able to do everything on the one computer. Right. And Todoist has been around for a very long time. It's kind of been the the solid rock in amongst all of these online to-do apps that have come and gone. All right. I actually thought it was iOS only. I didn't realize. Was there an in-browser version? Todoist was originally a browser thing. Right. And then oh, okay. from there, it went to Android and iOS. Right, right. Todoist is really good. And it's very, very simple. And it's easy to structure however you like. You know, you've got projects and you've got tags basically and then you can just set the tags up to work like contexts in any of the ways that I've described or not even have them at all and just have uh, just this big long list of stuff that you sort through and flag for things that you want to do today or whatever. Mm. So anyway, I also wanted to just touch on other ways that are not to-do apps that are really handy for keeping yourself organized. Okay. When I was working in um, the industrial design position that I was in, Mm. And following that also in the graphic design position that I had after that, I was actually using mind maps. Mm. And they can be really, really handy. 
And for the two years that I was working on a working industrial design, I was using FreeMind, which is an open source mind map program written in JavaScript. Hmm. Now I'm expecting the programmers out there to be spitting or hacking or coughing or uh, cursing. It's fine. They all love JavaScript. It's fine. Just roll with it. <laughs> <laughs> but there are others. There's MindNode on Mac as well. Um, and there's like iThoughts on iOS. There's loads of them out there. Mm-hmm. MindMap is really good for organizing yourself. Oh, right. I've never thought of it as an organizational tool so much as a sort of creative planning tool. Right. It's really good because just naturally, visually things have to be broken down. Right. You can't just slap in a piece of information anywhere. You know, it has to go into a logical structure. Right. Which forces you to break things down. Mm. And with the more advanced MindMap apps, programs, mm. like FreeMind, you can actually set a keyboard shortcut to assign, for example, an icon to a certain node of the mind map. Mm. For example, to-do or urgent or done or waiting for response right and then filter so that you only show the things that are waiting for response and then the mind map all shifts around it and it only shows you the things waiting for response but still within the logical structure so you actually see the parent nodes right and the one right at the end with the icon on it right and that was really fantastic not only that but together being actually a mind map together with your tasks you can then actually break down the task and add notes Mm. and very you know, detailed notes logically broken down mm. along with with the different tasks of things you have to do. And then you can just fold them up. You know, you just press the space bar or whatever and then it all folds down into the node. Oh, okay. I was going to ask about that because you were saying you could have a sort of sub-tree view where you select one node and you see that as the uppermost parent and all the nodes beneath that. Right. I was going to say, can you filter it so that like a node is is collapsed Mm. and everything. All the children of that node are within that one node. Yeah, that's right. Yes, you can. So you can do both. Yeah. Right. So for the two years and then beyond that three, four years that I was working in the design industry, it was fantastic because I had all of my work notes and all of my task lists and things that I had to do and all sort of sundries, you know, like if if the lead designer says, oh, you know, if you want to use the photocopy, you have to enter this code first. (laughs) Right. You know, where do you put that? As a lot of people would write that on a post-it note and put it on their monitor. Or on the photocopier. Oh, on the photocopier. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, a mind map is a great place for that. You can just have a node there so it's like, you know, office notes or something and just pop it in there and fold it up when you don't need it. Mm. Actually, talking about this again has made me all kind of itchy to get back into using that because I had it synced up on Dropbox as well so that I could have it at home. I could check on my Mac and then at work on the PCs at work, I could uh, check the same mind map mm. from... Uh, syncing up with Dropbox. So anyway, MyMaps is great. You might find, actually, then you might find that um, if you find it hard to keep the momentum going with these kinds of systems with lists and if if lists just sort of turn you off Mm. and if you're more of a visual thinker, visual logic as, as, you know, you you like visual hierarchies and things like that, MyMaps is something that you may want to give a shot. You do have to be very disciplined to start them every day. <laughs> you know, you have right. to start it up. You have to right. you have to actually be, have it there all the time. Otherwise, it's pointless. But it is a really great way to sort of keep track. Oh, there's one other good thing about mind maps, and that is that being visual and being a visual logical structure, mm. you can actually have an overview of a lot of different things at the same time. Mm. 
and that's something that any kind of to-do app is it's possible but it's a little bit more tricky because mm. you find very quickly that you know if you're looking at this project and that project at the same time you get a long list right and yeah. eventually you run out of screen space mm. whereas with the mind map because it kind of goes out sideways mm. and uh, you you know your screen is landscape you can actually set things up so that you can see multiple projects all at the same time, which is a great way to sort of get a, an overview of everything. Mm. And that's really, really good in, uh, in the case of like working in a design kind of role where not only do you need to see your notes about something, you also may need to see what's going on with another project or your, you know, your tasks for this or, or whatever. Right. There is one negative thing about my maps, and that is accessing them on a mobile device. Right, and editing them on a mobile device, I imagine, is fiddly. Exactly, yeah. So the two ones that I can recommend on iOS, at least, is MindNode and iThoughts. Mm. Both of these do a very, very good job in you know doing their best to making it ergonomic mm. however it's basically not ergonomic because it's a, a little portrait screen right <laughs> and there's a lot of pinching and zooming and like you know squinting and right. it's it just doesn't really work too well on a on a mobile device but if that's not important to you and if you're happy with just uh being on a desktop platform and on a large screen then definitely give my maps a try because um i've recommended the two them to a few people who have not gotten on well with lists and most of them have come back and saying, mm. actually, this is working really well. And I love the visual aspect of it. Oh, yeah. As well as keep making sure that you open it and being aware that the mobile device is a bit fiddly. There's one other, one other thing that I need to also caution you about using my maps. That is that mm -hmm. marking something as done needs to be treated a little bit carefully with a mind map. Oh, yeah. How do you do that? Do you color it in? There are different ways to do it. At those two years that I was um, in the industrial design company, I tried two techniques. The first one was to actually delete the node. Once I've done it, just delete it. Mm. And I found that that was mostly okay 80% of the time. 20% of the time, I needed to be reminded of if I'd done something or not. Right. Or like the lead designer say, Alex, did you do this? When did you do that? And I couldn't remember. Right. And because I deleted the node, there's no way of knowing. Right. So because that was happening fairly often, I tried a different technique, which was basically to have a keyboard shortcut assigned to adding a tick mark mm. or a check mark for our American listeners. And basically that would mark it as done. And then I would have a node off to the side, which was always closed, which is called archive. Mm. And when the parent node, i.e. the sort of project that those that task belonged to, mm -hmm. when it was all done then I would take that parent node and just drag it into the archive. Right, I see. And then when I needed to check if I'd done something, you just open the archive and then you have all of the projects listed there that you've been doing. Right. And then, you know, like once a year or so, you'll you'll start up a fresh, a new mind map and basically take the one that you were using for the previous year and say this is for this year and then that sort of clears out the archive. Right. So it's a bit of a awkward workaround, but that's what I found worked best for trying to manage done tasks in a mind map so there you go i think i just spoke for a whole uh, <laughs> 20 minutes about task organization uh, no it's interesting I, it might be worth a try with the mind maps i mean i know i've used them once on a project that i was working on with you right more for the creative kind of exploratory use that i think mind maps are better known for right and less for the actual task management uh, style of use mm. so i have used them before I'm not sure that the reason I don't get along with 
to do apps and task management is because of the presentation, okay. because it's lists. Mm. So much as it's the keeping up the routine of doing it, right? which would apply just as much to mind maps. So, you know, it may be worth a go just to see if the change in presentation makes it more appealing or, or something like that. But mm. I am skeptical that it would. It's interesting because there are other things that I've done, like the spaced repetition, which I mentioned earlier, where it's all about routine and it's all about making sure you open it every day. Mm. And they suit me really well. Like currently using spaced repetition for Greek and I've spent roughly between 20 and 40 minutes going through what the spaced repetition system tells me I have to do every day since more or less around the time we started this podcast. So for like six months mm. without a day's break. Wow. So I've, you know, I've never, I've never had a problem with that. So I'm obviously capable of having some sort of a routine and opening it you know having a program that i have to open up and work through every day right but with space repetition at least a if i don't do it one day then i'm really going to suffer for it over the next few days mm. because it's you know it's organized in quite a uh, an unforgiving way sometimes mm. and and b i don't have to spend there's not so much upfront time so it's not like I mean, it's a similar sort of pattern with a to-do list. You have sort of uh, considering time where you're planning out your day or week or month ahead and you're, you know, going through your task list and thinking it through and working out what all your tasks and your projects are going to be. Mm. And then there's the time when you're actually going through and working on things and, and checking things off. And there's a similar sort of two states with spaced repetition where I have time when I'm entering data into the system that i intend to learn which i do currently i'm working through a textbook so i i basically go through a chapter at a time and i just if i have a free sort of afternoon i'll go through and read through the chapter and work out you know mine it for hmm. data that can be learned like verb endings and things and then make cards right and then from then on every day i don't have to do that i just let it introduce them to me at a rate of about 10 to 15 cards per day. Hmm. In a single data entry session, I'll, I'll make like 400 cards, right? So that, that is enough to keep me going for like a month or so. Hmm. So that, that pattern works for me there. But I think it's, A, it's rare that I have to do the data entry, right? I don't have to be at, you know, the moment a task comes to me, I have to put it in and I have to spend a little bit of time every day or every week managing it i just do it mm. once in a blue moon well once in an actual moon actually because it's about once a month so mm. <laughs> once in a in a normal white everyday moon right uh, <laughs> and then the amount of time i have to spend on it during the day is a single block which is limited to 20 to 40 minutes in the morning and i just try and blast through it because i want to get it out of the way before i even start my day right right and I think that's part of why it works for me. It's not like I'm spending the whole day going back and forth into the app and then doing a task and then in to say I've done it and look at the next task and then doing another task. Like I've got the whole SRS thing that is annoying, but I have to do out of the way before I've even really started my day. Hmm. 
and that, that and then I can forget about it for the entire of the rest of the day. And I think that's that's why it works for me. And that's the exact opposite of what you want to do with a to-do list, I guess, right. because you want to be you should be constantly going back to it and and working out what you have to do next, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, I think maintenance and upkeep of to-do lists it is kind of critical mm. and yeah that's i guess if you don't enjoy that process or you find yourself getting bored or tired of it omnifocus is definitely not a good choice because omnifocus is designed around the idea of dumping everything into it and then as a routine going back later and organizing everything right so right. you do need to sort of ha- get some satisfaction out of that process of organizing things right which is kind of why i thought maybe my maps might be worth giving a try to be honest i it's also not the case that I don't enjoy or that I get bored of that management process necessarily. Mm. When I do it, I can find it quite enjoyable. And it does appeal to my sort of personality, I think, this idea of, of breaking things down and organizing them and stuff. Right. I just don't do it. Mm. <laughs> when it when it finally comes to time that I, you know, I think, oh yeah, I've got to do this thing. Okay, I'll do it. And when I'm, you know, having one of these phases that I go through when I decide I'm going to give another to-do app a go Mm. and I spend like a week diligently going through it every day. I do actually quite enjoy it, but I just fall out of the habit so quickly Uh, and then I feel so little desire to go back that it it just never sticks. mm, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to, yeah, to cap it off, I think it's also important to say that there is no reason that anybody should have to be using one of these or that you can't get on with a difficult work schedule, lots of different responsibilities and different tasks here and there that you have to remember Mm. that you need something like this in order to actually cope with that because that's just not true. You know, it's it's not so critical, this kind of system, that you, you can't get on without it. Right. So, yeah, that's, I think, important to say if anybody's listening and wondering, oh, all this talk about my maps and to-do apps and GTD and all this kind of stuff, you know, I, I really should be using that kind of stuff. No, if you're not using it now <laughs> and you're getting on fine, then that's then you probably don't need to. They're not essential. Mm. However, they are very useful, you know, when you come to those points with a work schedule or with a project where it's just too much and it's just so overwhelming and you're just feeling lost in it all. Mm. If you find you've, that's happening very often, and you find that you're writing things down just as a means to try and remember things so that you can keep up, but it's just happening so much, then uh, that might be the time that you may want to look into one of these ways of organizing yourself using digital tools or you know just a piece of paper with lists broken down in, in a certain kind of structure or something. Right. So definitely not essential, but um, if you are interested, then uh, it might be worth giving some of these a shot. 